You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Lord and our God, we come before you with your word open before us, and we truly ask that we would be shaped by this word. The Holy Spirit might use it in our lives to guide us into just how to follow you, Lord Jesus, in ways that honor and glorify the Father. Help us now, we ask, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Our lectionary text is Matthew chapter 4 in the calling of the disciples. John the Baptist has been imprisoned, and his public ministry looks like it's over. Herod has imprisoned John, and the disciples of John apparently scatter many of them going back to Galilee. And Jesus decides to also return to Capernaum, to Galilee, and to begin his public ministry. And you can sum up his ministry in a line, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's all we have. And then we have a simple description, a very austere narrative where Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he sees Peter and Andrew, and he calls them to follow him. Come follow me, I'll make you fishers of people. And at once, they leave their nets and follow Jesus. And then he walks a little further along the Sea of Galilee. It seems like in the same sequence, the same episode, And he comes upon James and John working with their father in the boat, a fishing boat, preparing their nets. And again, Jesus says, come follow me. And we're told immediately they left their nets and followed Jesus. Now, what I find interesting is that Matthew doesn't give us any kind of existential state in which these four men are in. There's no description here of how they feel, what they think, uh, what has led to this particular decision. And so I think the lectionary may be important for us today because it associates Psalm 27 with this particular gospel narrative. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And here now it would be great if you have your Bibles or you have the worship folder open to the psalm because we're going to follow that psalm, because this is my thesis here. My idea, suggestion to you, is that this psalm can be counted on to have shaped the minds of the disciples. Now, first of all, John the Baptist has had a great influence, undoubtedly, on these four men. They have heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They have heard John's testimony that uh, I didn't really know who this was until the Spirit descended upon him. So that has been a factor. But one thing that ought to be underscored and that maybe 21st century Christians don't quite grasp is how much the Psalms have shaped the perspective of the disciples They are immersed in the Psalms. They have memorized the Psalms. They have prayed the Psalms since they were very young. 
And I think that helps to account for the response when they believe indeed that the Messiah has come. Although they know very little at this point, they have hardly begun to grasp what it would mean to follow this one. And very little idea of what the Messiahship is going to look like. No idea about a cross. Not connecting at all Isaiah 53 and a suffering servant with the Messiah coming as Savior. But this psalm has had a powerful influence on them, I think, and I'm going to, just for the purpose of uh, remembering, first of all, this psalm underscores the deliverance that God gives. The second emphasis that I comes, and I do this somewhat in trepidation because I don't think the psalm should be reduced to three nouns. Because the psalmist here is poetic, passionate power comes through, but hopefully we'll see that as well. But first off, deliverance. Second, there is a, uh, a devotion that's expressed in this psalm. And then thirdly, a dependence. So the first section of the psalm, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Three metaphors are used there, light, salvation, and stronghold. Underscoring the fact that if the Lord indeed is my light and my salvation and my stronghold, what do I have to fear? Now, I I realize there's different levels of understanding that. It can be a conviction of the mind, but it doesn't get played out in the heart. And life might be spent, most of our lives might be spent working that mental concept, which we believe is true, into our spirits, into our emotions, into our psyche. I, for one, am still learning how to take that concept and apply it to my feelings. But the psalmist begins there and strikes there. Augustine was really interesting at the beginning of the psalm. Augustine's from the 3rd and 4th century one of our early church theologians, and he said, go on. Go on, find someone more powerful and be afraid. I belong so thoroughly to the most powerful one of all that he both enlightens me and saves me. I shall fear no one except him. Which I think we could translate into American through Clint Eastwood, go ahead, make my day. It's helpful in the midst of a crisis and a difficulty to start here. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I be afraid? I think if that's worked into, as I think it was for the disciples, if that's worked into your mind and your heart and your psyche, it really helps to become resilient uh, in Christ. David articulates here, Three uh, sets of opposition that are all extreme. When the wicked advance against me to devour my flesh, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I was reading along in a fairly technical commentary on the Psalms this week. Um, 
And then suddenly I came along a paragraph that really took me back. Rolf, uh, let me get his name correct, Rolf Robinson is professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so he's giving the sort of the technical lowdown linguistically and theologically on Psalm 27. And then he says, will you let me share a deeply personal reflection on this psalm? And I, I mean, you've got to read this kind of literature to know how unique that is, because oftentimes that just isn't sort of permissible, it seems, in a scholarly work, which I, as a pastor, find very sad. He said, this psalm, when I was 15, inspired my fascination with the psalms and with the Lord. He was diagnosed at the age of 15 with bone cancer. It led to the amputation of both legs and three surgeries on his lungs. And he said, this psalm presented both the reality of fear and the reality of God to me in a profound sense. And he said, that focused my attention in a way that is beyond explanation. And he said, I I had two fears to cope with, the fear of life. Would death be taken? Would death be a part of this? And the, the reality of if I lived, what would it be like to live with such a remarkable disability? Would I have, would I have a vocation? Um, would I have purpose? Would I have love? Uh, I'm happy to say now that if you Google his name, uh, Rolf Robinson at Luther Seminary, you are greeted with a very happy professor. Uh, several kids, a productive life. Uh, he's been a, a wonderful uh, pastor and theologian. But I was just struck. It, it really hit me. Uh, it was just two days ago that I read that. And just how the Psalms inspired his conviction in his walk with the Lord. So the first thing I think the the disciples were prepared for by reading the Psalms and praying the Psalms, and Psalm 27 would have been a favorite, is that they understood their deliverance was in the Lord. I think that prepared them for Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee and saying, come, follow me. And then second, which I think is the heart of the Psalm, and so often the main thing of the Psalm is in the center, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. The house of the Lord is his fourth metaphor. The house meaning the presence of God. This being the passion of the psalmist. This being his devotion. He speaks as a king. Thankfully, not as a pastor. Because I want my sisters and brothers in Christ to share this one thing. This is, there's no kind of levels of spirituality. There's kind of no levels of commitment. The the Bible does not address us this way. If Jesus is Savior, then he's Lord. If he's Lord, then he's King. That's it. And whether you're in banking or plumbing or housemaking or whatever, 
This is the one thing that we really can share together. Every moment of every day becomes an opportunity to express this devotion to the Lord. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty. I think this ranks right up there with the Apostle Paul's idea that I consider everything a loss except for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That passion gets played out, I think, in all sorts of ways in Scripture. I think, let me add here with this one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek. Uh, I think each and every person's relationship with the Lord is unique. Somebody said to me just in passing this week that, Well, don't you know that every marriage is unique? And in a way, no two marriages are exactly alike, nor should they be. And I think it's helpful and freeing to realize that just like each one of us are individually unique, I think our relationships with the Lord are individually unique. And they don't have to fit a kind of cookie-cutter expectation that that relationship is personal. It, yes, and I don't want, don't, don't want to over-individualize this, but I think that this is freeing. Now, I have uh, visitors today, Jules and Graham Cole from uh, the Chicago area. Uh, Graham is dean of Trinity Theological Seminary. And uh, I got permission to use this illustration 10 years ago. I hope it's renewable. (laughs) But um, when Graham started out his pastoral ministry, he really took Charles Simeon, the 19th century pastor, as his model for the number of hours spent in prayer and preparation for a sermon, for the diligence of study, for all of that time being committed to a preaching ministry, And he couldn't do it. Demands of life and ministry and family were too much to keep the Charles Simeon ideal. And it was Jules that made him wise to the fact that you have to follow the Lord the way the Lord has engineered your life and guided your life. Charles Simeon was single. He had six pastors to do the pastoral work around him. He was independently wealthy all of which um, Graham didn't have. (laughs) So we follow the Lord in a way that is unique, that the Lord has provided for us within our personalities, within our gift set, within our family circumstances, with what life has presented itself to be. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. There's not a sameness to that. Soren Kierkegaard expressed himself on this psalm, So may thou give to the intellect wisdom to comprehend the one thing, to the heart sincerity to receive this understanding, to the will purity that wills one thing, amid distractions concentration to will the one thing, 
in suffering patience to will the one thing. Now, the third aspect. So we've said that the disciples are exposed to an understanding of deliverance. And they are uh, exposed to Jesus, uh, to this understanding of devotion. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. And you almost think that in verse 6, its psalm should end. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Great conclusion. But verse 7 seems to take us on a deeper level of passion. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face. And then there's four do nots. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant away in anger. You've been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me. Isn't it interesting? This is kind of a, I think, a deeper level. He begins with the idea of external factors, of warriors and soldiers. That's what he uses as a metaphor to describe the external opposition. But now it comes to this. I can't live without you, Lord. And the worry here is not so much on external circumstances or opposition, but just the fact that uh, I need you, Lord, and I need your face. John, one of those four, will come to say the word was made flesh. The human face of God in Jesus. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Oh, way back when I was a pastor in San Diego, I received a letter after preaching on Psalm 27. I received a letter from a woman in the church that said, who felt that her father and mother had forsaken her. And how much this psalm meant to her because of that. Uh, she said, I grew up in a nominally Christian home that used religion very negatively. And it was always them, against us, them against us. And she said that, kind of spirit of negativity and uh, meanness and harshness just was a part of me. And she said, I've spent most of my adult life weaning myself away from how I was nurtured and how I was trained as a Christian in the name of Christianity. And she went on to say very specifically in the life of the church that she was experiencing how the church had become like her father and mother and that she was really able to worship the Lord because of that understanding and that love that she experienced. So this is what I think the disciples experienced. They were shaped by the Psalms. They had an understanding of the Lord's deliverance. They could share the psalmist's passion. One thing I ask, this is what I seek. And there was this sense of complete dependence upon the Lord. Lord, help me. I seek your face. And the psalm closes with this encouragement. I remain confident of this, 
I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.